0: Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever the word of the Lord. Be to God. I, was, uh, I was watching a movie on Netflix the other day while I was working out, which is a way to help keep my mind off the fact that I'm paying the YMCA a lot of money every month so I can get sweaty, gross, and out of breath. (laughs) Anyway, the movie opens with an assassin sitting alone in a room, contemplating a hit that he's been contracted to do. This sounds like the beginning of a great sermon story, doesn't it? (laughs) So he's been sitting in this cold, empty room in Paris for days, fighting off boredom while waiting for the target finally to appear. But since the target's yet to show up, our industrious assassin sort of idly starts looking through a scope at the people on the street, Many stories below. Uh, The scope appears to be from the rifle, but it's not attached. Now, the reason I'm pretty sure it's a rifle scope is that, apart from the fact that there's a rifle on a table nearby, the picture that gets projected on screen, this is how I know. It it, it appears to be a a set of crosshairs in the middle of a round field, right? It, the assassin moves the long cylindrical scope back and forth by turns focusing on the people who are sort of walking around on the street down below. And it, 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 it feels relatively standard as a cinematic convention, you know? Forcing the movie viewer to see the, uh, through the eyes of the killer as he, in, at least in this case, moves the crosshairs over a smattering of unsuspecting pedestrians. I mean, we've seen this before. As I say, it, it all felt pretty standard as far as movie tropes grow. Like, like I observed this same kind of videographic shot since childhood, hundreds of times, but, but something caught me, pulled me up short. At one point, the assassin passes the crosshairs over the head of a little girl. Couldn't have been more than four or five. He was just standing there, unaware. Now, I mean, apart from the obvious reaction that one might have in a culture dipped to the elbows as it is in the blood of children, to see an innocent girl framed as... A target. Even though I knew that the scope was unattached, my body did this huge adrenaline jump. uh, I mean even though in my mind I knew that she wasn't in any danger, I mean it's a movie after all right, my body acted as if it were real. And the little girl might be soon another statistic. Has that ever happened to you? You think you have a pretty good read on the world, and then out of nowhere, something happens that you weren't expecting, or maybe something doesn't happen, and it hits you that your perceptions of reality aren't nearly as etched in stone as maybe you'd spend most of your time thinking. Now, underneath the surface, there's more happening than we often realize in our mental life. The the idea that reason trumps emotion, for example, is is kind of an ingrained misleading belief uh, that's been challenged by recent neuroscience. See, now historically, Western thought, which is heavily influenced by Plato, has viewed reason as a tool to sort of control the emotions. right, like like reason is the charioteer holding the reins over the unruly uh, uh, course of emotions, right, that are constantly threatening to careen out of control. But neuroscience reveals that reason often relies on emotion to make decisions. Rather than something that's unruly, that's always got to be throttled, emotions are an important partner. Key life choices and moral decisions often need emotional input. So this concept was highlighted by a philosophy professor named Jesse Prins from the University of North Carolina. And I saw this lecture he gave back in 2007. he just recently published the book, The The Emotional Construction of Morals, in which he argues that our moral values stem from emotional responses that are shaped by the culture. So so that means that our emotional reactions, which are often much quicker than rational thought, significantly influence our moral judgments before we ever even know what's going on. Like, Like every time we're tempted to change the channel when those commercials about abused animals come on. What nauseates and angers us probably isn't the careful study and research we have put into animal neglect and cruelty, but our emotional response to those images, which are trying to wake up our reason to the injustices about how animals are treated. In fact, we realize that many emotional responses occur within within milliseconds which are much more rapid than the mind can think this situation over rationally that's why we tell vulnerable people for example trust your instincts right because over a lifetime of being on guard against threats vulnerable people have built up a pretty impressive early warning threat detection system i mean that's why we can be instantly triggered by just hearing a word spoken, by reading a phrase or, or, or glancing at an image. Indeed, most people have have had the experience of, of feeling anxious and uneasy or, or happy and content w- w- without even knowing why. Has that ever happened to you? As Fred Craddock has said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can kill me so while we navigate roles in life whether that's employee or supervisor or spouse or parent or citizen Christian all of these different identities we often do so without fully understanding the undercurrents of our perceptions see much of our experience of the world remains below the horizon of our conscious perception And that means, sometimes, our understanding about the world can be really profoundly mistaken. Now that, of course, is precisely what's at issue in our passage from Amos this morning. Israel, in the midst of receiving a devastating uh, rebuke from the mouth of God, is pretty sure it's got this whole faith thing figured out. But God's outraged. our text for this morning it opens with a grief a divine grief transformed into fury alas God cries out for you who desire the day of the Lord why do you want the day of the Lord it is darkness not light as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand on the wall and was bit by a snake Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, gloom, no brightness in it? See, the the children of Israel have their stock futures invested in the day of the Lord. Somebody from Bernie Madoff's office, before he went to jail, they reached out with a can't-miss, get-rich-quick pitch about how the children of Israel would hit the jackpot when the day of the Lord finally arrived. Knowing that their troubles would soon be over, they were ebullient, right? I mean, they, 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 they were already chilling the champagne. Standing around, big dopey grins on their faces. And, and, and some, uh, perhaps, maybe they were getting impatient. Uh, these were the arms folded sort of foot-stomping types, uh, fuss budgets, who who could have sworn that God surely should have done something by now. I mean, they'd plowed a life savings worth of hope into the belief that the day of the Lord would be a great day of celebration and joy, a a day of peace realized and fortunes restored. But in this passage, when God starts talking, Israel sort of sounds like a kid, you know, that kid in the movies who's... Who throws a snowball at the principal and sort of sticks a tongue out only to turn around and see that the principal standing right behind him? Arms crossed, toes tapping. See, God puts a quick halt to their premature celebrations. The day of the Lord, God says, is really not something that you should be throwing watch parties for. So God goes on to describe the calamity that will befall those with uh, those from the, the children of Israel with some fairly dark and sinister similes, right? As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into a house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Oops. Because, I mean, look, God, we're... <laughs> We're not entirely sure what, uh, what you're expecting from us, but and we gotta tell you that doesn't sound at all like the literature. I mean, the copy was very clear. It said, the day of the Lord is going to be the answer to all your prayers. I mean, that, that's what it said. A- and besides, I mean, like, we've done everything right. Do you not live in the finest temple in the world? Do you not love all the tapestries, the lovely Torah scroll, the gold faucets we've installed in the bathrooms? And, and, you know, don't get us started on all the bad things we refrain from. Look, we're morally outraged by moral outrage. We're in it to win it. We've got our eyes on the liberation prize. And if that's not enough, just think about our worship I mean how can you not love the best burnt offerings and grain offerings around oh we got the whole spectrum we got festivals we got solemn assemblies we got music like you wouldn't even believe so (laughs) excuse us but we're not really sure why you're being so huffy with us I mean quite frankly we think you've got it pretty good having us as your people and God says oh really really And God says, well, you know, I hate to break it to you, but I hate your, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I won't look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. And Israel says, what that's right i don't want any of it well why not i mean it's all for you is it are you sure because i'm starting to wonder whether it's actually for you you know going through all the motions perfectly in the hopes that maybe it'll impress me but lord why would you say that look look at our sincerity We, we we can't believe the right things any harder we can't say them any louder. We can't print them any more boldly in letters of gold. What do you want from us? And God said, "Well, you see, that's where you get lost in the weeds. You think somehow that just getting your heart right is what that uh, is all that's required. But there's, I mean, there's so much more to it. And the stuff that you're actually missing, yeah, that's the most important stuff. Like." well, like what? Well, I mean, what? what are we missing? What is, I just got done telling you just a few verses back. Justice. You lack justice. And they just started looking around at each other going, well, that doesn't sound right. When We treat each other just fine. Don't we, Randolph? Don't we, Mortimer? Harumph, harumph. And that's not what I mean. Remember what I just got done telling you. No, what, what, what was that? Remember just a second ago, a couple verses back, when I said, they hate the one who reproves in the gate. They abhor the one who speaks the truth. And therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you've built houses hewn of stone, but you shall not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. And therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time. It's an evil time. Remember that? You trample the poor. You take more than your share. You subvert justice with corruption and push aside the folks who need help the most. So don't think you're getting by, <clears throat> don't think you're getting one of those fancy chocolate fondue fountains in a bouncy house when the day of the Lord arrives. But, well, what about how hard we, we believe the right things? Or, I mean, and how can you complain about like all this stuff, the worship and stuff? And God says, you know, I... It's not the worship itself, which, all else being equal, is, is beautiful. It's just fine. You can do and say all the right things in your personal, moral life, in your worship, without ever scratching the surface of what it means to be my people. Because my people are supposed to be known for the way they love the rest of the world <laughs> and those that the rest of the world has said aren't worth bothering with. The weak and the vulnerable, the poor and the dispossessed. Look, I don't care how sparkly things are if those who invest in them aren't motivated to love the undefended and ignored ones who live at the center of my heart. I mean, it's like putting fine leather seats, burled walnut and a silver bud vase on the interior of a 74 Pinto. I mean, I mean, it might look nice seated on the outside, but to everybody else watching or on the inside, but to everybody else watching from the outside, it looks just like a rusted out 74 Pinto that nobody in their right mind would ever get into voluntarily, let alone strap their children into, because anybody who's not already seated inside can see that the thing isn't going to go anywhere, and that if it ever did manage to get off the schneid, it's in danger of exploding should it ever come into contact with anything more substantial than wet toilet paper. And there it is again, isn't it? The powerful in Israel take for granted that they know how the world works and how God operates and what God expects. They believe that God will be sufficiently impressed if they get the worship and their bumper sticker morality just right. But the world isn't what they thought it was. They just assumed they knew that, uh, what God wanted, which was flashier and better. But God says if everything else you do isn't motivated by your love of the imperiled and unremembered, then it's worse than if you'd done nothing at all. Because if you'd done nothing at all, at least then it would be an honest admission that you don't understand. But as it is, you take for granted that you already know But see, that's the thing. There's there's no way to know what I want without looking into the eyes of those who've already been cast aside. You know what I really want? God says, I want justice. I want justice to roll down like water, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I want you all to be mixed up right in the middle of it. Commentator Charles Aaron says, the image of justice rolling down like waters calls for justice to happen immediately, like a sudden deluge. The poor and the marginalized should not have to wait for justice. Justice must happen now, with the urgency of a storm. The community should sustain justice. Justice should remain available just as a stream provides a reliable source of water. Because that's it, isn't it? Some 800 years later, the author of the book of James will go on to say, you know, faith without works is dead. It'd be easy to act like James' words don't make any sense. I mean, what are works anyway? But then Amos shows up right behind him just to clarify. When the people of God say works, in God's vision of things, that means faith without justice is dead. And nobody's got time for that. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.